0: good morning, everybody. So we're doing a sermon series on the Psalms, and when I first heard what psalm I'd be preaching on, I was walking to the gym, and I got a text from Father Aaron, our pastor here, who's not here right now, um, and he said I would be teaching on Psalm 91. And when I saw the word Psalm 91, I immediately smiled and kind of chuckled because I have some history with this psalm that brings just some heartwarming memories to my mind. Um, When I was a college student at Northwestern, I was part of an Anglican church on campus there. And every Saturday, we would walk to a nursing home about two blocks from campus, and we would lead a church service there for the residents. And these residents were very old. The average age was 92, actually. And so most of them were quite limited in, in the terms of memory and attentiveness and eyesight. So we would print the bulletins for the service with huge font. And so the, the bulletins would be like these thick packets. And because it was so much paper, we would use the same bulletin for about a month or so worth of Saturdays. And just as a side note, because that kind of sounds cheap, um, <laughs> with, with the residents of that age, either if they remembered it, they enjoyed the fact that it was familiar to them, But quite honestly, most of them had no idea that it was the uh, bulletin last week. So (laughs) Um, so anyways, during the season of Lent, we had Psalm 91 in the bulletin. And so for about six Saturdays in a row, I was at that nursing home at 2.30 p.m. with the residents, reading through Psalm 91, together with the congregation like we do here, very loudly, very slowly. And so I became pretty familiar with this psalm. And the reason why it makes me smile is because getting through it with the residents there was quite a memorable process. Um, I'll just give you a little insight into what that looked like. So as you can imagine, since this is a pretty long psalm and with the big font, it took about four pages to print, four or five pages to print the psalm. And with the residents, it would take quite a while to to help them to go around and help them flip the page. Um, And so the way that we had the psalm printed, I'll never forget how it read, because it went. This is just a snapshot. You will not fear the terror of the night, nor the arrow that flies by day, nor the pestilence that stalks in the, all right, everyone, turn to page six. (laughs) Page six. Where does the pestilence stalk? (laughs) Everyone turn to page six. Oh, the darkness. Stalks in the darkness. (laughs) Just a very poorly timed break, but it made for some very suspenseful Saturday afternoons. (laughs) And so then we'd read on. And we got to the line, "A 1,000 may fall at your side, 10,000 at your right hand. And every time we said the word 10,000, this one resident Mary would go, holy cow, (laughs) without fail. So as you can imagine, I really loved these people, and I loved getting to spend time with them every week, being there with them. But while going to that nursing home did bring me a lot of joy, there was also a real element of difficulty and sadness to being there every week and seeing these people, who were once doctors and professors and prominent business people. It was a pretty wealthy nursing home in Evanston. So seeing these people just so weak and completely dependent on their caretakers, seeing them forgetful and lonely and seeing them die, it was very sobering for me, especially as a college student whose mind was mostly filled with my grades and my career and what dining hall I'd go to that evening. It was a time when I was really hit by the difficult reality of life. Maybe you're feeling hit by that difficult reality right now. Maybe you feel the weight of that reality in your personal life. You might feel lonely or anxious or like you have no energy. You have relationship tension. You have a sick, loved one. Or maybe you're particularly feeling the weight of that reality as you look upon the world around us. So much violence, so much injustice, and senseless killing. What are we supposed to make of God in this difficult reality? How are we supposed to feel secured by the Father, which is the the title of this message, in a world where we know that bad things do happen and will happen? So, we're gonna look at Psalm 91 and see how security in the Father is his presence and his promised redemption. His presence and his promised redemption. So, as we look at Psalm 91, we're gonna first look at what the Psalm is not promising then what the psalm is promising, and thirdly, how we can really hold to that promise today. Psalm 91 is saying we are secured by the Father, we are protected. That is the promise. But before we understand what this promise really means, I want to talk about what, is, what it does not mean. When we read through the psalm at first glance, it sounds like it's saying, if you trust God, nothing bad will happen to you. There are these sweeping statements throughout the middle verses about God's protection. We read about the protection from the snare, the pestilence, the terror, the destruction, any evil. So what is this promise of protection? When we read this through, it looks like it's saying, if you really trust God, if you really love God, if you love him enough, your life will go smoothly. Nothing bad will happen to you. That's kind of what it looks like at first. Sometimes I think that's kind of what we want to believe. But that is not what the psalm is saying. And I'll give you two reasons why we know this for sure. The first reason is also inside the Hebrew scriptures, we have the book of Job. Job was a man who was completely bombarded by disaster. Violence, harm, disease, loss of loved ones, one thing after the other. These terrible things happened to him. And Job's friends come to visit him, and this is what they say. They say, well, Job, if you trust God, he won't let bad things happen to you. So you must not be trusting God enough, and that's why these bad things have happened. Are they right? Is that true? Well, we see at the end of the story, God shows up and he says to Job's friends, you have not spoken truth about me. So if we interpret Psalm 91, that trust in God equals immunity from anything bad, we're thinking like Job's friends, to which God says in Scripture, you are not speaking truth about me. Another reason why we know that we're not to interpret Psalm 91 that way is because Satan wants us to read it that way. And how do I know this? It's because there's one place in the Bible where the devil actually does quote Scripture, and it's Psalm 91 that he quotes This is in Luke 4, which is where Satan is tempting Jesus in the desert. And one of the ways he does this is he quotes Psalm 91, verse 11 to 12, how God will protect you with his angels so you don't even hit your foot against a stone. And he tempts Jesus to jump off the roof of the temple with this logic. If he trusts God, God will not let him get hurt. But Jesus rebukes him for that logic. So here we see that this notion, if I trust God, no harm will happen to me, is an idea from the evil one. It's not from the Lord. And I think it's because Satan knows that if we believe this, we'll be deeply frustrated and deeply disappointed and bitter at God. Maybe you feel that personally. Maybe you feel angry or hurt at God because you trusted him with something and it's not turning out as you hoped, and you don't know what to make of it. Maybe you feel that way just as you look at the world. Well, God does have a promise for you to be secured and protected by Him. And now that we know what the promise is not saying, we're going to explore what it is saying. So, if God's promise is not immunity from trials, then what is it? What is the protection? We can break it up into two parts security in the Father is His presence and His promised redemption. He will be with us in trials, and he will show us salvation from trials. So we'll look at the first part, God's presence. God is with us in trials. So earlier we were looking at the middle verses of the psalm, all these sweeping statements about God's protection. But in order to understand what his protection means in those, we have to look at at these promises in the context of the first verse, which will set the stage. The first verse is, Those who dwell in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. So if you're secured by the Father, you're abiding in the shadow of the Almighty. So what does that mean, to abide in the shadow of the Almighty? Well, to abide means to act in accordance with or to follow. And who is the Almighty? Well, we saw in Colossians, talking about Jesus, that he is the head of all rule and authority. So if we are abiding in the shadow of the Almighty, we're following the shadow of Jesus. Being secured by the Father means following in the shadow of Jesus. So when Jesus was a man on earth, and when he had his ministry, he was a rabbi. And a rabbi was a Jewish teacher. And the way it worked with the life of a rabbi, any rabbi, not just Jesus, was they would have students who would follow their teaching, but they wouldn't just follow their teaching, they would actually physically follow the rabbi around as he walked around, and they would observe and learn from him, literally walking in his shadow. So if we're following Jesus, we're literally walking in his shadow. Think about this. There is nowhere that God leads us that he hasn't passed through first. Think about that in your life. Whatever is causing you fear right now, or maybe this upcoming week, if it's a class or an interview or just a typical day at work or at home with the family. I encourage you to remind yourself this week that wherever you go, just know that Jesus has gone before you. That is the first part of the promise of protection. Security in the Father is his presence, his presence with us. We see this clarified again at the very end of the psalm, which says, I will be with him in trouble. Note that it doesn't say, I will be with him, and therefore he won't experience trouble. It says, I will be with him in trouble. God's protection in all things does not mean they won't occur. It means that he will be with us and protect us in them. But I do understand that that sounds counterintuitive. How can you be protected in the midst of trouble? Well, David knew what this meant, and we see this in in Psalm 3. When David wrote Psalm 3, there were armies of people chasing after him for his life. He was literally in the midst of trouble. And this is what he says in Psalm 3. He says, Oh Lord, how many are my foes? How many rise up against me? Many are saying, God will not deliver him. But you are a shield around me, O Lord. First, note, many are saying to him, God will not deliver him. Here he's being tempted by that same logic that tempts us to believe if we're experiencing trials, God is not there. He must have forsaken us, He's not protecting us. But David knows God's true promise. He says, But God, you are a shield. Around me, and the word "around" is important because if we think about different kinds of shields, there's the like kind of plated shield that you would use in a sword fight to fend off the sword. But that's not a shield around you. A shield around you was a shield that was used for major battles in horrible danger. It's not one that gets you out of danger. It's one that goes with you into danger. So David's not saying. God, I'm scared, but I know that you don't let bad things happen to me. He's saying, I'm scared, but though you take me into danger, your shielding and protection is certain when I'm following you. No matter how bad things are, you are going to work good things in my life. You are going to shield me from, you are not going to shield me from danger or pain, but you are going to shield me in the midst of them or even with them. If you view God as your general and you are following him in your life, then the truth is that anything that happens to you, if you're obeying him, is part of his shielding to you. That God is a shield around us, no matter where we go. We can rest in that. So that is truth. But how do we know that that's true? How do we know that God is really serious about shielding us? That he's really with us in the middle of pain and violence, and suffering? How do we know that he's with us there, protecting us even in that, that it's just not a nice idea, but sounds comforting? How do we know that God has not forsaken us to the evil of this world? Well, we need to look no further than to the cross, because on the cross, God showed us the depth to which he was willing to go with us into trouble and protect us. On the cross, God himself took upon the ultimate consequence of the evil of the world that we ourselves had unleashed and perpetuated by turning away from his order. He saw the pain and the evil that resulted on earth because of our sin, and instead of leaving us to suffer and experience the hell of it, he sent his son, Jesus, to take the judgment of evil upon himself so that we wouldn't have to take it upon ourselves but if this is what God has done for us, why doesn't it always feel that way? We still suffer from the evil of the world. I go to the nursing home and I see it. We still die. So what does it mean that God protects us from those things when they still happen? Well, the promise of protection makes sense because suffering and death are not the end of the story. God is working out something far greater than we see now. God promises redemption. Security in the Father is his presence and his promised redemption. His presence in trials and his promised redemption of trials. Remember, we're following in the shadow of Jesus. And yes, we see Jesus suffer and die, so we shouldn't be surprised when we suffer and die. We're following in his shadow. But then we see three days later, he rose from the grave. That suffering and death were not the end of his story, and so they're not the end of ours either. There is a salvation to come that undoes even death itself. And we know that because we saw the first fruits of that in the resurrection of Jesus. And the complete unveiling of that salvation is yet to come, but it is coming. God says at the very end of Psalm 91, I will show him my salvation. And this salvation is not an escape from evil. It's a redemption of evil. Heaven is not a faraway paradise that our souls fly away to, to escape from this evil world. Heaven is a new world, where evil will not only be absolutely eliminated, but absolutely redeemed. God's salvation is not a consolation for a life we never had, but a restoration of a life we always wanted, the life we always knew the way it should be. When we look at this world, we know it's not how it should be, and that should say something about what we were made for, and that is what God is bringing us. God is bringing his power to bear on all things that we will see how everything bad will not only be undone, but made more glorious. Jesus' death on the cross was not bad. It saved us. It was terrible, but it made something even more glorious. There is a resurrection from that, and there will be a resurrection on the other side of any trial we go through or we see. Security in the Father is his presence and his promised redemption. Security in the Father is his presence in any trial, and promised redemption of any trial. So this sounds really hopeful, but it also sounds frustrating, at least it does to me. Even though I'm getting emotional as I talk about it, I still get frustrated, because why does it have to be this way? Why doesn't God just unveil that complete salvation reality right now? Where are you feeling that frustration, that tension, Where are you waiting for the Lord to show his salvation, to show his clarity, to show his deliverance? I want to leave us with a story that encourages me in how to face occasions where I feel like I'm waiting on the Lord's promise of his presence and his redemption. It's the story of a man named Jairus, which can be found in in the gospel passages. Jairus was a man who was really feeling the weight of the difficult reality of life. His 12-year-old daughter was in bed dying. So he goes out on the streets, and he finds Jesus. He finds him in the town, and he begs him to come to his house to heal his daughter. And Jesus agrees and begins making his way to this man's house. So think about how Jairus is feeling. He's probably hysterical, completely plagued by worry, In impending despair as his daughter is dying. But then he finds Jesus, and Jesus agrees to come over. He knows that Jesus can heal anybody. He knows Jesus can heal his daughter, but she's still sick in that moment, and he has to wait for Jesus to get to his house. So on the way, all these people are crowding around Jesus, and there's a sick woman who's bleeding and reached out to get healed. And Jesus stops and talks to her. Can you imagine how Jairus Jairus must be feeling? He knows his daughter is dying. He knows Jesus can help her. But he has to wait for him to get to his house. And now he has to wait even longer, because Jesus stopped to talk to this woman who's already healed and had a less urgent issue to begin with. It doesn't seem to make any sense. Why is Jesus making him wait? What is God doing? Why isn't he acting and saving right now? Maybe you feel that way. You feel like God is delaying, like God has forgotten about you, or a cause you care about, or people that you care about. If we learn anything from the story of Jairus, we see that God's sense of timing will always confound ours. His grace rarely operates according to our schedule, When Jesus looks at Jairus and says, don't be afraid, just believe, he's saying to us, if you try to impose your understanding of schedule and timing on me, you will struggle to feel loved by me. Trust me. Be patient. Be patient because the deal usually doesn't work out the way you expect it to. Jairus was looking for a healing, but what Jesus gives his daughter is a resurrection. He proves his great power in not only making a sick girl well, but a dead girl alive. He shows that he is so much more for us than we can comprehend. So wherever you're looking for healing today, I challenge you this morning to open your mind to expect even more. Expect a resurrection of whatever is weighing you down. Heed the words of Jesus, don't be afraid, just believe. Trust me, be patient. Remember, while you're in the trial, that even there he's protecting you, even there he's using it, and that he promises redemption. So I encourage you to expect more and to be patient and to rest in the security of your heavenly father in his promise of redemption and, his, and in his presence in the moment. Let's pray. Dear God, we thank you that you are a good father, and that is who you are, and we thank you, Lord, that you are with us, that you are Emmanuel, God with us. We thank you that no matter what we're going through now and what we'll go through tomorrow, that you have gone before us, and we thank you that in all we experience, you are making all things new, that your redemption is sure, and I pray that you would give us patience and hope and joy as we await to see it unfold. In Jesus' name. Amen.